Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, standing with some very beautiful people here. First, right here in the blonde, we have Jocelyn, three years old, all the way from West Jordan. And then we have Dad here, Carl, and he is with his family. Carl has seven children, two of them being represented here. Uh, came out of Mormonism how long ago? A year and a half. About a year and a half. Uh, 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 praise God for that yeah. with his entire family. And so with him, we have his 11-year-old daughter, uh, Alesa, right? And then we have his nine-year-old daughter, Ataylee. Yeah. Is that correct? And anything you guys would like to say? Anything at all? Dad or kids? God's awesome. Amen. I agree with that one. Anything, girls? Jesus, she says something about Jesus, a great family. Jocelyn, is there anything that you'd like to say? God's body. God's body, which is the body of Christ we're talking about here. Way to go, you guys. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> there you go, baby. I'm going to have you step right over there. Thanks, Carl. I want you to know that Jocelyn gave me chocolate, so... That's, uh, that's it right there, baby. Um, listen, we praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this ministry. May, be, uh, may he be with you and with us uh, tonight. Every week we gather, pray, and sing, study the word of God at campus. You're never there. How come? Uh, did someone hurt your feelings? Do you feel unworthy? Uh, are you afraid of organized religion? If you have a church, keep going to that church. But if you don't, and you're out there, you know, come and give campus a try. Sunday's 10 a.m. we call milk. 2.30 we call meat. Uh, and it's, it's strong milk. I've been, uh, Nan has told me to say it's strong milk. And so don't get uh, uh, worried about that. Join us. Go to www.campus with hyphens in between. Got a graphic up there.com for more information. And listen, beginning Sunday, June 3rd, Sunday night, June 3rd from 7 to 9 p.m., we are going to add uh, for ages 16 to 25 a youth thing. So milk's at 10, meat's at 2.30. Mayhem is from 7 to 9. If you're 16 to 25 years of age, bring a friend, join us food, open mic, live music, more. That'll begin Sunday, June 3rd, up at the U, 7 to 9. Go to campus.com for more information. AM 820, The Truth. It's a radio station here in the Salt Lake Valley. Excellent. And they play Heart of the Matter on Sundays from 1 to 2. So uh, AMA 820 is great to listen to throughout the week. Uh, very good pastors and teachers on there. Check that out. Where does your support go toward? Among other things, take a look. You know, we've actually had some people get very irate at the fact that we play that song with that little uh, 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 spot there. And, you know, Jesus loved the party. When he called Levi to come join him, Matthew threw a party. And all of the publicans and sinners wait, and the, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees stood there, and they said, did you know your master eats with sinners and publicans? He loved a good party. That's where people are. And I'm not talking about party like, you know, drugs and all that. I'm just talking about a place where people gather eight. That's a new one. Uh, where people gather and eat. And so uh, just calm down, will you? All right. Uh, got an email from Al Wagner out in Bakersfield a few weeks ago. He let us know that the largest evangel evangelical Christian university in the world, Liberty University, founded by Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, has invited Mormon Mitt Romney 
to deliver their school's commencement address. Uh, if you go to Liberty University website and look at their statement of beliefs, I can tell you that any active faithful Mormon would not accept one tenet that they have in their statement of beliefs as it listed. Not one. In fact, a Liberty University freshman textbook called the Popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics says, quote, Mormon doctrine stands in stark contrast to Jewish and Christian monotheism, which teaches that there is only one true God and that every other God is a false God. And yet, end quote, uh, an active, faithful, temple-attending Mormon has been asked to deliver the commencement speech to a gathering of hardworking students and their families who specifically attended Liberty University because it believes in the monotheistic God. Uh, on the screen, we have an email and phone number of Liberty University. Uh, give them a call or write them a letter and voice your opinion about the mistake of embracing this this uh, uh, ecumenical outreach of bridge building with uh, people who really worship a, a completely different God. Along these lines, I want to point out how narcissistic U.S. Christians are being in their support of Mormonism of late, uh, building bridges. You see presently members of the body here in America are building bridges and accepting Mormonism in many ways uh, as a means to benefit the conservative party in the United States uh, politically and possibly economically. Usually uh, uh, people can do, uh, Latter-day Saints have a penchant for doing things well economically. So uh, Christians are saying, hey, you know, we want to keep uh, things going. And so they're doing that. But the American Christians, uh, are they considering the, Christ the plight of our Christian brothers and sisters in third world countries uh, and those others living abroad. You see, while American Christianity might, might still understand what Mormonism is doctrinally and be able to possibly put some people into office who are LDS, which I still say is a mistake, but in any case, uh, they send a message across the world that won't translate to third party uh, people. Uh, I mean, conservative Christian groups are the ones who made uh, a, a president, uh, made a Mormon a president. So comes the knock at the door, you know, Brazil, Peru, uh, South America somewhere, Australia, Japan, and, you know, and hello there, mate. And there's some Mormon missionaries here at the door, love. And you're kidding. Oh, isn't your president a Mormon? Well, yes, he is. We want to share a message with you about Jesus Christ. Oh, good. Well, we really think he's a sharp-looking man. Come on in and let's hear your message. And, you know, we're not doing any favors for people who don't understand what Mormonism is all about when we put somebody uh, in office. And so while America gets her economic stability and controls her social evils, Christians are telling the rest of the world, you can just go fend for yourselves. And... Uh, Mormonism is going to proliferate in those countries, if not here. How about a moment from the Word? We're still in John chapter 5, and this week we come to verse 39, where Jesus says to the Jews, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Jews in possession of scripture, which at the time was simply the books of the Old Testament, believed that their knowledge of them would grant them eternal life. In many ways, their thinking was on target. 
Not that written words could give any person eternal life, but the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we are told throughout its pages to read and study it because the living God reveals himself by studying the word. The first point to bring out in the Mormon Christian debate is that if the Bible cannot be trusted, why did Jesus tell the Jews to search it? In Isaiah 34, 16, the Lord himself says, Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. None of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath, for, for my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it had gathered them. When Jesus was alive, Luke records something very interesting in describing his life and ministry, saying in Luke 24, 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. End quote. Jesus trusted the correctness of scripture, but the Mormons don't. By searching the scriptures, Philip realized the identity of Jesus, and he went and found Nathanael, and he said in John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, remember, the Old Testament writings were just as old to Jesus when he was alive and from what he was quoting as the New Testament is to us and our generation. And yet Jesus trusted them. In describing the Bereans, Luke writes in Acts 17, 11, the method by which you determine truth, saying these, the Bereans, were more noble than those others in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. It was by searching the word they determined the truth of things, not by their feelings. Paul wrote to Timothy the following about scripture, saying in 2 Timothy 3.15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So here, this, what Jesus is saying to the Jews essentially is, my brothers, search the scriptures. For in them you believe you'll find eternal life. Do you realize that they are testifying of me all through them? And it is by and through me of whom these scriptures testify that you will be saved. In my opinion, the single most diabolical thing that Joseph Smith uh, perpetrated onto and into the hearts of people who believe in his messages wasn't his false priesthoods, it wasn't polygamy, it wasn't his idea of God or his fraudulent revelations. All those were horrible. But I personally believe that when he got people not to trust the word of God, he committed the greatest uh, uh, crime against God. Search it, my friends, for it testifies of him who saves. And with that, why don't we have a word of prayer? Father God, we seek you and need you uh, in our lives. Uh, be a lamp to us, a lamp unto our feet. Uh, let your sure word come to us, Lord, and help us, like the Bereans, search it. Uh, forgive the things I do and say that are not of you, Lord. I'm, we're just trying. Help those who are seeking, whether they're in this audience physically or out in television land, watching archives, streaming video, wherever it may be, Lord, we pray for this and we pray for our callers tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, so we're going to wrap up tonight. We are actually going to publish the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith had three and eight witnesses sign affidavits that they had seen the plates in one way or another. Proudly, the LDS defenders will say, well, none of these witnesses ever denied what they saw, uh, even those who were disenfranchised from the faith. But think about these men for a minute, okay? They had signed a written witness swearing they had seen the plates in some form or another. And this witness went in the beginning of every Book of Mormon that was printed at the time and thereafter. For any of them to admit that they were tricked or worse yet that they lied and deceitfully signed their name to that witness, it would have labeled them as liars and deceivers for the rest of their lives. Uh, the more important evidence is how many of them left the confines of Mormonism. So from start to finish, the testimonies of these witnesses were anything but stable and reliable. Sometime after the witnesses signed their affidavits, the golden plates were returned. Uh, as typical with Mormonism, there are a number of accounts of how this happened and what it actually meant. Some accounts say that the plates were returned to the angel Moroni himself. The LDS have pictures in their libraries of Joseph handing, physically handing the plates back to the angel Moroni. Some say that they were deposited back into the earth where Joseph pulled them from. And some accounts say that they were taken into a cave that exists in the Hill Cumorah in New York where there were a ton of plates and they were deposited on a table with the rest of those plates. Now, take a minute and contemplate this story for a second. How does God provide scripture? He didn't do it over a single setting. He did it over a 1500 year period of time. And he did it through a whole bunch of different writers whose writings were copied and the old ones were tossed because they were getting old and the new ones were made and passed down and passed down and finally compiled to where Tertullian, an early church father said by 150 AD, he could say in his writings, the scripture that we have now was all present in what we call the Bible. Nicaea wasn't for another 150 years. It wasn't compiled at Nicaea. It was compiled by believers way earlier in time. But we come to uh, the golden plates. We come to Joseph's tale. God, first of all, has these people write on plates. Now, these are transit transitory people. They are nomadic, and they're moving around all the time, and yet he has them write on plates which weigh a ton and can only hold so much stuff forget the paper and the lightness of it he has them right on plates and they're carried about for a thousand years by different people groups and then they are put on a heavier set of plates after they're abridged down to these golden plates and the golden plates are then buried in a hill named Camorra and uh, by a man named Moroni and then Moroni comes back as an angel 1200 years later and he reveals to a guy who has been convicted of pretending to see buried treasure by staring into a hat they, he gives them to this guy and this guy translates them and then he shows them to his family and another family and they are the witnesses for the plates um Really? I mean, really? Uh, forget all the lack of evidence, just the story in and of itself. Okay, but the general story most LDS repeat about the Golden Plates location now is that they're somewhere in heaven. Most LDS will say, we say, where are the plates? Well, the angel took them back to heaven. I want to know why they didn't come from heaven in the first place. Why did they have to go through the whole Barry story, and then the angel, when they're done with them, 
picks them up and takes them to a heavenly place. Why didn't the angel Moroni come back, take them? It's all convoluted when you start getting down to it. There's holes in the logic if you sit down and think about it. But more importantly, compare it to how God has worked through his Bible and how he has put that together and how there is literal places. So just keep all that in mind as we go through. Now, Joseph Smith himself said very little about how he got rid of the plates. Uh, It's from other parts of Mormon history where we get these other accounts. Uh, For a truly laughable account, check out the article titled, Camorra's Cave, Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, Provo, Utah, uh, the Maxwell Institute, and I think we have a graphic there for those of you who are taking notes. Go check that out and read about where the plates actually went. Uh, uh, The article details how Brigham Young, the prophet, spoke at length in the Journal of Discourses about this hidden cave that's located in the Hill Cumorah, an actual cave there, which the church owns today, and we could go and look at that cave if it was there. And according to Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, along with Oliver Cowdery, uh, David Whitmer, and possibly uh, Hiram Smith, they went to this cave and put the plates on a table near wagon loads of plates that were in this cave. Okay, and along with other ancient records, and Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses describes the Sword of Laban, a nefarious Book of Mormon character who had a sword on the wall of this cave. In a subsequent trip recorded in the Journal of Discourses, Brigham Young says that Oliver Cowdery told him firsthand that on another trip, they took that sword off the wall, they opened it up, and they placed it on the uh, plates. And written on that sword was this. This sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. So this is all part of church history. And somewhere on that hill, Camorra, should be a cave with wagon loads of plates, with the sword unsheathed and all this stuff. I mean, this is, I'm not sure if you realize it, but uh, this stuff, it just continues to pile up when it comes to the story. Now, another factor about the plates, before we let them go, is that uh, a portion of the plates were sealed. David Whitmer and other third parties said that two-thirds of the plates were sealed so that Joseph could not translate them. And so uh, that means the Mormons believe today that those plates are going to be translated at a future date and bring forth another book. In the Book of Mormon itself, in 2 Nephi 27.7, it says that the sealed portion contains, quote, a revelation from God from the beginning of the world to the end thereof. Now, Joseph wasn't allowed to translate those sealed portions, but supposedly someone's going to come along and do that. Well, in 1987, a guy named Christopher Namelka shows up, and he says, he used to be a security guard for the church, he says Joseph Smith himself showed up to him and delivered to him the sealed portion, and he translated it into a 655-page book, uh, uh, the second Book of Mormon, essentially, In a phone conversation I had with a faithful LDS woman, Ida Smith, great-great-granddaughter of Hiram Smith, she told me the moment she set eyes and read that book, the burning in her bosom confirmed that Namelka was true, that Joseph truly gave this man in 1987 the plates, and he translated it in the sealed portion to today. Uh, It just gets crazier and crazier, doesn't it? It just doesn't end, does it? Uh, In any case, the chronological 
exhaustive analysis we're doing in the Book of Mormon, the plates have, are now gone. Where they are, we don't know. When Martin Harris approached a local printer named E.B. Grandin to do the job, Grandin initially rejected to do the work. He didn't want the, the, uh, the punishment and the notoriety for doing such a work. But later he acquiesced and he started to print the Book of Mormon. Grandin had employed a typesetter by the name of John H. Gilbert, who wrote out his recollections of how the printing went. This is what John Gilbert wrote. When the printer was ready to commence work, Martin Harris was notified, and Hiram Smith brought the first installment of the manuscript of 24 pages, closely written on common fool scrap paper. But it had, it, he had it under his vest, and vest and coat closely buttoned over it. At night, Hiram Smith came and got the manuscript and with the same precaution carried it away. The next morning, with the same watchfulness, he brought it again and at night took it away. This was kept up for several days. The title page was first set up and after proof was read and corrected, several copies were printed for Harris and his friends. On the second day, Martin Harris and Hiram Smith being in the office, I called their attention to a grammatical error and asked whether I should correct it. Martin Harris consulted with Hiram Smith a short time and turned to me and said, quote, the Old Testament is ungrammatical, set it as it is written. <laughs> uh, uh, and so uh, in the typesetter's account, he wrote more about Harris saying, Martin was something of a prophet. He frequently said that Jackson, meaning Jackson County, would be the last, I mean, excuse me, Jackson the president, would be the last president that we would have and that all persons who did not embrace Mormonism in two years' time would be stricken off the face of the earth. He said that Palmyra was to be the new Jerusalem and that her streets were to be paved with gold. Martin was in the office when I finished setting up the testimony of the three witnesses, Martin, Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer. I said to him, Martin, did you see those plates with your naked eyes? Martin looked down for a instant, raised his eyes up and said, no, I saw them with a spiritual eye. The work was commenced in August 1829 and finished in March 1830, seven months. That's the end of the recollection of the printing. When it came time to have the printing of the Book of Mormon paid for, Joseph faced a major problem. Martin Harris, the mark, the capable financier in the group, uh, got cold feet. Now, this is really intriguing. Didn't Harris actually see the plates? Didn't Har wasn't he a witness to the plates? And he gets cold feet when it comes to actually having it printed? Does that make you question anything at all? Very suspicious. So what could Joseph do? He did the only thing that Joseph could do in situations like this, and he did what he more and more and more would do from that point forward to the end of his life. He received a revelation. And the revelation was Joseph speaking as if Jesus Christ and talking to Martin Harris about what he needed to do. In his own history, Smith called this revelation, quote, a commandment of God and not of man to Martin Harris, given by him who is eternal. So let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. And while the operators are clearing your calls, listen to the revelation Joseph received to get Martin Harris to pony up the cash and print the first run of the Book of Mormon. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 119, one of the earliest revelations Joseph claimed to have had, he speaks to Martin Harris in the person of Jesus Christ, as I said, saying, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, Christ the Lord, yea, even I am He, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of the world. In the next five verses, Joseph has Jesus speaking of punishment, suffering, weeping and wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Then in verses 6 through 12, he spouts a bunch of explanations about the eternality of hell, about, uh, and then he's primed the pump, all this stuff about pain and punishment and woe and suffering, the ex in, in the excitable religious mind of Martin Harris, Jesus is speaking through Joseph. Joseph says at verse 13, Wherefore, I command you, Martin Harris, to repent and keep the commandments which you have received by the hand of my servant, Joseph Smith Jr., in my name. And it is by my almighty power that you have received them. Therefore, I command you to repent, repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not. How exquisite you know not. Yea, how hard to bear you know not. In verse 16 through 19, Joseph continues as the voice of Christ to describe the suffering of the unrepentant and the sinful. Then in verse 20, he says, Wherefore? I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree you have tasted, at the time I withdrew my spirit. In verse 21 through 25, Smith continues to speak about things like repenting, and then in verse 26, he returns to the purpose of receiving the revelation in the first place, saying, And again, I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon, which contains the truth and the word of God. In verse 30, 27 through 31, Smith rambles on telling Harris he needs to focus on teaching the basics and avoid getting into other things. And then once again returns to the subject at hand and says, beginning in verse 32, in the voice of Jesus, behold, this is a great and the last commandment which I shall give unto you concerning this matter. For this shall suffice for thy daily walk even until the end of thy life. And misery... Thou shalt receive if thou wilt slight these counsels, yea, even the destruction of thyself and property. Impart a portion of thy property, yea, even part of thy lands and all. Save the support of thy family, meaning give everything except what you need to take care of your family. Pay the debt thou hast contracted with the printer. Release thyself from bondage. In verse 36, this is in their Doctrine and Covenants. This is a revelation the Mormons believe that Joseph received from Jesus to give to Martin Harris. In verse 36 to 37, the Lord does a little more preaching to Harris then wraps the whole matter up this way. Verse 38, pray always and I will pour out my spirit upon you and great shall be your blessing, yea, even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth and corruptibleness to the extent thereof. Behold, canst thou read this without rejoicing and lifting up thine heart for gladness? Or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide? Or canst thou be humble and meek and conduct thyself wisely before me? Yea, come unto me, thy Savior. Amen. Harris paid the bill. 
And on March 26, 1830, the Wayne Sentinel, a local newspaper, ran an advertisement saying that the Book of Mormon was, quote, for sale, wholesale and retail at the Palmyra Bookstore. Let's go to the phone lines. Let's see who we've got. Put my chocolate-covered glasses on. Travis in Murray. It says three. I've got no lights lit up, Derek. Travis, you there? Yeah, hey, what's up? You're on the air, my friend. Hey, what's going on, Sean? Same old stuff. How are you? Uh, same old stuff myself. Uh, hey, long-time fan. Uh, I just have a quick question. Don't want to take up too much time, but... Uh, was wondering, uh, out of Mitt Romney and you, who do you think is the biggest mustard clan? I think that would have to be me. Uh, for those of you who don't know this, um, first of all, our operators, uh, they clear anybody and everybody as long as they're a first-time caller. They let anybody come through who can formulate a sentence. We do not stop anybody. And people tell them what they're going to talk about. So whoever that was is someone who lies. Because they've told our operators one thing, but they get on here and then they lie. The second thing about that is Musty Clam, somebody years ago called the show and called me a Musty Clam. And I don't know what a Musty Clam is. I grew up by the beach and I still don't know what a Musty Clam is. But uh, they called me that and it went on for a while. About a year I was called the Musty Clam. And uh, so that's what he's referring to. Okay, let's go to James and Magna, first time caller. James, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hey, James, you have, to turn, your, you have to turn your TV set down, James. My question concerns the uh, brass plates. I'm fascinated by the brass plates. All of the writings in the, the transcription in the, of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon yeah. come from the brass plates. Okay. And I got the sound off. Now, did, Joe, did uh, Joseph Smith show Oliver Cowdery the brass, brass plates in the Hill Camorra? Or... Uh, well, there was wagon loads of the supposedly records there. Must have been there someplace. These brass plates predate the the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls by several hundred years. This would be the most fantastic find of the 21st century if the church had just come out with these brass plates, and it would prove so much. Well, I was reading. Uh, I was a staunch Mormon when I, when I was reading about these brass plates in the Book of Mormon. But that that's the thing that uh, that's the whack of the tree that the. Uh, that fell down. I couldn't believe that they were transcribing from these metal plates onto these other heavy metal plates what was already written on the brass plates. Yeah. That's my comment. It's a really good one. Just to let our audience know, uh, what in the Book of Mormon narrative, in the first book, Nephi, a character, is commanded to go back to a man named Laban and to get the brass plates which contain the genealogy of their forefathers. And so in the Book of Mormon narrative, Nephi goes back and through a whole bunch of stuff, they cut off Laban's head with his sword. That's the sword of Laban that's supposed to be in that cave. And they get the, blast the <laughs> brass plates and they bring them with them on their voyage across the sea to the Americas. And then what this caller is saying is that the, the person who put all the plates together after a thousand years took from the brass plates the words of Isaiah and transposed them into the gold plates, which became the Book of Mormon. And he's saying, how come those brass plates weren't kept? How, if they were in that cave, how come they didn't come forward, etc.? Here's the thing, just as a little side issue, and that is those, the, the translation that supposedly came from these brass plates and were brought into the Book of Mormon 
is the King James English that were supposedly written thousands of years before King James was even born. And the mistakes that were in the King James were included. And in. so if he was literally writing from brass plates, there would be no way any of that would occur. The whole thing's a farce, but I'm glad you came out of it. What are you doing now with your religious walk? Well, I'm a born-again Christian. Praise God. Again, I was a former seminary teacher, not very long. Uh-huh. But, uh, I studied myself out of the church, basically. Wow. Here about the, back on the brass plates, uh, this would be the most incredible, if they a actually existed, this would be the most incredible archaeological discovery of the 21st century. You're right, James. Surpassing the Dead Sea Scrolls. James, before you go, what would you say to our audience, people who are LDS who will are watching now or will be? You are an ex-seminary teacher. You were LDS quite a while, I'm assuming. What would you say to them to do? Well, I talked about the last whack that made the tree fall. Yeah. Which whack is the most important, the first one or the last one? Well, they are all important. Now, you have Mormon friends and Mormon relatives, and you go talk to them, and they don't change. Well, you gave them a whack. Don't stop whacking Someday that tree might or might not fall. All right, very good. Really appreciate it, James. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to, uh, uh, we're going to go to Dennis in Salt Lake City, a first-time caller. Dennis, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, my question is, why doesn't the news media ever question on uh, the TV when they ask Mormons, are you Christians? And Mormons say, oh, we believe in Jesus Christ, therefore we're Christians. This is like a, a Scientologist saying, we're Christian because we believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, why don't they question what Jesus Christ do you believe in? You know, we, we live in an age, um, Dennis, and I know you know this, but we live in an age when the media is totally secularized, they don't care about those hard questions because they don't care about truth and they don't care about religion. And we live in a political correct age where they're afraid to like broach subjects of, of God. So they just let anything go. They don't care. They care more about the social function of a president, which is, you know, a good concern. But to us who are Christians, it's very important that we hear what the beliefs are of the man who's, or the woman who's going to take office. So it's a really good question. I, I, I wish more people would call them out on it, but... They don't, you know. Well, absolutely. In addition to that, I mean, to say that uh, Obama's this terrible socialism, uh, Mormons believe in uh, the United Order, and they have a town in southern Utah called Orderville, which celebrates the fact that they're the first communist town in, in uh, North America. So, yeah. you know, you, you Christians are not supporting a quote-unquote conservative for office. I mean, it's ludicrous to me. It, it is ludicrous. It's laughable, but it's like, well, you know, I can't really get into it too much because of the show and, and, and what we do. I'm, I'm forbidden to get into it too much, but it is laughable, and you bring up some, some great points, Dennis. Thank you. Well, Christians really need to wake up and stop this from happening. That's, that's what I, all I have to say. Thanks. I agree, Dennis. Do something about it. I don't know what, but try. We're going to Joe in Salt Lake City. He is LDS. Joe, is, first turn off your TV. All right. And is your name Joe? My name's Joe. All right, Joe, you're on the air. Okay. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing well. All right, I just wanted to broach something with you. I want you to think about this. 
Okay, hold on. I asked you before, what's your best evidence about the church that you can prove that the Mormon church is true? Well, here's the problem you've got. Okay, all the things you put up and everything you say and all your defenses and everything else, there's one thing that proves that the Mormon church is a true church of God and, and, you, and you are not. That proves it? Yes. Okay, well, hear me out. I am. Because the priesthood, what are you going to do about the priesthood? Without the priesthood, you're not going anywhere. The okay. Mormon church has brought the priesthood, has brought the church back to the earth, and the priesthood. The priesthood is, the, is responsible for thousands of inventions, for quickening of the minds, of uh, all the people who who have it, and uh, without that priesthood, you're not going to you're not going to reach to the to the higher uh, echelons of the Lord's kingdom. Okay, well, thought let, about that. Okay, let me just let me just say this first and foremost, uh, Joe, you are going to go before God, and and you're going to be you're going to claim to hold a priesthood, and you're going to say by this priesthood what? What has this priesthood done? What have you done with the priesthood? that this priesthood qualifies you to, to achieve the uh, upper realms of the celestial kingdom. Okay, well, you remember in the Bible where it talks about Melchizedek, the Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek okay. was such a high priest that he raised the priesthood. All right, for one, the, the, what I'm watching you on right now, the TV was invented by, by Farnsworth, who was from Idaho, who was a Mormon, who had the priesthood. He would have never got that... <laughs> Are you telling me because a Mormon invented the TV and he held this phony priesthood that that is proof? No. I'm, I mean, what about Stephen Jobs? That's just one article, Sean. Okay, well, then give me something real here, please. That, listen, that's just one event. Give me something real. I want to know when you go before God, Joe, what you're going to say about, about possessing this priesthood that makes you qualified for this upper realm you just said you had to have it for. Tell me, articulate it for us who are listening, what this priesthood will do that you've possessed that God will say, wow, Joe, you get to go to the highest realm. What is it about it? Well, I have the Aaronic priesthood. I'm not got the highest rung yet, but I can, uh, I can bless people. I can uh, baptize you. And when you come back to the church, I'll be the first one there to baptize you. And uh, these are the ordinances of God, see? Okay, so the ordinances, so you're going to be able to say to God, I was able to perform your ordinances in your name for people, and that make that qualifies me to go to the highest realm. Is that part of it? Sean, Sean, if I sent you out to do it, you couldn't do it because you don't have the priesthood in it. Okay, I'm just asking you to articulate for the audience, Joe, how important this priesthood is, what it brings to the table. It's now, absolutely I, 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 important. We are told... And we receive inspiration from God. How do we receive inspiration from God? How do we get the ideas to further mankind? It comes through the priesthood. Okay, That's so how you know the Mormon Church is true, okay, right there. Oh, that, it's from the priesthood. Okay, now let me respond to your priesthood, to your priesthood comment. Okay. All right. First and foremost, we are talking about Aaronic priesthood or Melchizedek. Well, either one. But either one is not sufficient here. Either one's not sufficient. They're not either one. First of all, you understand that the Aaronic priesthood from Aaron was only through the lineage of Kohath 
And those guys had to be 33 years of age, and their sole purpose was to work in the temple, sacrificing animals during the burnt offerings and all that in preparation and a picture for the Messiah to come. And that when the Messiah came, the priesthood, the veil was ripped in two, signifying from God, top to bottom, priesthood, done for, ironic, no more, done, over. But you have 12-year-olds who are doing God knows what on, on, on Saturday night, going in and doing uh, these things for this priesthood that Joseph reincarnated and reapplied back to this earth when it was done by uh, Jesus through what he did on the cross. But that's just the ironic. Let's get to All the right. real one. Let's get to the real one now, the Melchizedek, my friend. Why don't you turn to Hebrews and open up to chapter 7 and read the book of Hebrews, Joe. Your All ignorance right. is I, killing me. I respond to that. I forgot to tell you one of the most important ones. Okay, wait a second. Priesthood, who, when do you take the sacrament? After he was crucified and he was resurrected, he came back and he said, you'll eat of this bread and you'll drink of this wine. Yeah. The priesthood it blesses the sacrament that the people take to identify themselves as Jesus Christ. Who says this? Where, where, does, you sh where does the scripture say the priesthood blesses the sacrament that you take? Where does it say this, Joe? I bless it every Sunday. I, I realize you bless it, Joe, no. but where does it say it? Where does it say that you have to it have... It says it in the Book of Mormon. It says it in the scriptures. Scriptures. It, it doesn't say it in the Bible. Uh, Joe, you're totally off base. When Jesus was crucified and he come back, he said, you'll eat of this bread, you'll, you'll so? take this bread in remembrance of me. And Christian churches do it all over the world. And what are your, what's your point? My point is the priesthood is the one who administers that. Oh, okay, so let me ask you something. Priesthood. So priesthood is everything then? Absolutely. Okay. It's not everything, but I'll tell you what. It's the, it's the ability to act in God's behalf. And unless you have that, you're not going to get as close. You've made that clear, Joe. You've made that clear. Now, let me ask you something. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is walking along and his disciples ran up and they said, Hey, hey, Lord, that guy is doing stuff in your name. And what did Jesus say? He said, Hey, leave him alone. If he's not against me, he's for me. Where was the priesthood for right. that? I'm just saying that that priesthood is bestowed upon a man so that he can act in God's behalf and do the ordinances and the laws that need to bless his people. All the great ideas that have come down to mankind, all the space, information, everything that's profound that we've accomplished is because of the priesthood. Don't forget that. This is fantastic, isn't it? All the great accomplishments of the world, from the Renaissance to Sistine right. Chapel, to everything has been accomplished because this priesthood, which was restored in 1830 by Joseph Smith in very precarious ways. I'm going to invite somebody up here. Now, I've got a whole bunch of stuff here about uh, about the priesthood and about Melchizedek. And after we hang up, I'm going to cover that quickly with our audience about Melchizedek. God. No, but wait, Joe. I want to invite my friend up here. This is Robert. Come up here. Guy. Uh, when you Thank wait, you, Robert. No, wait, Joe. It's Robert's turn. He's going to say something about priesthood. Go ahead. Okay. Um, if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, the King James Version has a phrase, unchangeable priesthood. If you look at that word in the Greek language, it's the Greek word aparabartos, which means that Christ's priesthood, the scholars have agreed throughout history, Christ's priesthood, his Melchizedek priesthood, is non-transferable. You don't pass it from person to person. Christ alone has that priesthood. And it's his, his alone.
He doesn't give it to anybody. He doesn't share it with anybody. And also, even as a Mormon, you would agree that Christ himself doesn't die anymore. He ever, the, the other portions of the book of Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for the transgressors. Christ, Melchizedek priesthood, as, if you, as you would call it, it's his alone. He doesn't give it to anybody. He doesn't share it with anybody. You don't, Look have, up, a, you don't have a Melchizedek priesthood. Thank you, know. you. That's right. You don't have one. It's phony baloney. Thank you. All right. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Uh-huh. Joe, in, in the Bible, when it, when it describes Melchizedek, it describes him as was without a father or a mother, without descent, without a beginning of days, nor an end of life, that he was made like unto the Son of God, and he remains a high priest continually. Now, I want to ask you something. Who is that describing when it describes Melchizedek? Well, it says Melchizedek was one Jim Dandy of a guy, and that's why they named the priesthood after him. But, but no, it, actually, your Doctrine and Covenants says that Joseph Smith said they named the Melchizedek priesthood after him but, so that the priesthood uh, of God, God's name, would not be repeated and blasphemed. So they call it the Melchizedek priesthood for that reason. Yeah, but if you don't believe the priesthood's transferable, how come John the Baptist came down and laid hands on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and gave him the priesthood. See, you don't believe that. Okay, first of all, that's a very convenient story. But second of all, John the Baptist came down and did what? I want you to read Grant Palmer's book, um, Latter-day Saint, uh, 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 Insider's View of Mormon Origins. Why don't you do some homework, Joe? Because I got to tell you, I like you. you. You seem like a guy that if we weren't talking about religion, uh, you know, we would really get along. But I'm going to tell you something. You are regurgitating the biggest bunch of garbage I have ever heard. And it's oh. so sad that a man oh, of was... your age, a man of your age, has bought in to the lies. Why don't you do some homework? Why don't you find out about the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood bestowal and how it was a, it's a complete joke. It's not true. It was revised so that you would believe it. There is no Melchizedek priesthood, Joe. There no, is none. I believe that. I know you don't believe it, Joe, but you've been deceived. Well, I'm going to tell you this. When you see the light, I'll be the first one there to rebaptize. But up, but I like that line. It worked the first time. It's died now. We need something fresh and new, buddy. And the fresh and new thing is going to be where you look to the Lord and you say, you are my high priest. You are my king. You are the one who makes intercession before the Father, not some man who dies and has to go in year after year. It's continually through you, Jesus, and unto you I bow. When I hear that, dude, I will let you dunk me in any water you want and say whatever words you want. It separates this church from all the rest. It certainly does. It certainly does. Good luck with that, Joe. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right, we are going to uh, Becky and Leighton, who has a comment about Melchizedek Priesthood. Becky, you're up. Hi there. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Hey, I'm, I'm taking a class called Fresh Start. I used to be Mormon. Uh-huh. And what this class does is it teaches you the differences in, um, like, the Bible theories and, and Mormonism. Okay. And just, it just so happened this last class that I took... They was talking about the priesthood, okay. what the purpose of the biblical priesthood was, and why um, God, instead of giving that authority to Moses, he gave it to his brother Aaron, 
It has never been called the Aaronic Priesthood. It was the Levitical Priesthood. And then once that, um, there was, let's see, once Jesus came, the priesthood of the Melchizedek was given to him. But the only way that you can get that is God called him to that position. To be in that position, you are indestructible. You have to have an indestructible life that cannot be destroyed, which there's only one person that can never be destroyed, and he was here, and he is still alive. Amen. It was made with a solemn solemn oath from God. Um, This person holds the priesthood permanently. It can't be taken away from him because it was given to him from God. He lives forever, and he is the Son of God. So for anybody other than Jesus to fill that position is impossible. And the other thing that um, they was talking about was the temple and the things. You know how it's supposed to be the restored church. Yeah. Well, the only things that that happened in the temple um, would be the only people that could go in there were the priests. They did not let women inside there. At the, out, the outer court was the court of women and, and Gentiles, so only, you know, the priests, the Aaronic, not the Aaronic. Completely, completely, uh, different, priest, completely different temple, in there, right? The only one that could go into the Holy of Holies was Aaron, because he was the high priest. So all the stuff that they do and all of the, um, like the sacrament, you know, Jesus turns water into wine, and they, like, turn it back into water. water. Just everything that they do, if they would think about what they're doing, I mean, it looks really cute on the outside and everything, but if they knew how, how bad they are slapping God in the face, I, it just it amazes me the more that I learn about what they do. Keep going, Becky. We, thanks for the call. Great information. All righty. We love you. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. A couple things about Melchizedek, just to give you some more information. In Psalms, David wrote, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This was a prophetic utterance, speaking of Jesus. Okay? In Hebrews 7.3, it, uh, it says that uh, uh, the writer gives details about him saying, Without father, without mother, without descent, without having the beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. The, uh, Melchizedek was a picture. He was a picture, a Christophany in the Old Testament, picturing Christ to come, the only high priest to ever be. When Latter-day Saints say, I'm a high priest, it is a blasphemous, it is a blasphemous uh, appellation to assign to themselves, and it's very serious. And that's why we get so steamed with them. They're going into their temples, they're calling themselves high priests. Becky pointed out, those high priests, it's nothing like the temples used to be. But open your eyes. Melchizedek was a king of Salem. Who else was a king of Salem? His name is Melchizedek. Tedezek, and it means my righteous king. Who's your righteous king? King of righteousness. And where was he from? Salem. Not Salem, Massachusetts. Have you ever heard of Jerusalem? Okay, so he is a righteous king, and he uh, was um, the uh, priest of Salem, you see? And so we have a picture of Christ. He brought, what did, uh, what did he bring forth to Abraham after Abraham going to war? What did Melchizedek bring to Abraham? He brought him bread and wine. The same elements that Jesus introduced when in the Last Supper that Joe uh, mentioned and that Becky mentioned. Uh, he was a high priest to the Most High God. Abraham paid tithes to this. Abraham, the father of the faith, 
Abraham, the one who starts it all, paid tithes to Melchizedek before tithing was even instituted. Why? Because this picture, this Christophany of Melchizedek was pointing to who the Messiah would be. And uh, he also said, like Robert brought out, that he is a high priest forever and ever and ever. Old Testament, the high priest came and went as they died and circled through, but there was one high priest. Finally, Hebrews 7 points out, no more going in and out. We have one, and he makes intercession with us in the Holy of Holies on high. And we pray, and our high priest, Jesus, makes intercession with us before the Father through his shed blood, which was shed once and for all. Uh, Joe, you're seriously misguided. And you're going to have what I would think is going to be a theological uh, convulsion when you die. And you go before God and you claim some sort of priesthood that it makes you qualified to get to a higher kingdom. Jesus, Jesus alone, come to him, give him your life, repent of the sins, say, save me, give me a new heart. And if you're not Joe and you're somebody else out there, this is serious stuff. We are talking about eternities now. You've been deluded by a guy who looked in rocks and pretended to seek buried treasure and spirits. And, and we have the, the fallout from that with Joe Collin and saying, you need to have this priesthood to be right with God. It's insane. Okay, let's go to Nate. It looks like he's from Leighton. Nate, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean. Nate, you got one big minute. I, what, literally 60 seconds? Yeah, because we got to get to Rob. Okay, here's the deal. I went to rehab, struggled with addiction for 15 years, learned Jesus Christ is God. I set out to disprove it, became a believer. My whole family's LDS. I really admired their opinion. I pondered everything they did, and I came up with Joseph Smith was a liar. Ran into, hooked up with my father a few days ago, and they sent me a letter talking about Moroni. And I believe Moroni is talking about Isaiah. Am I wrong or right? Or what can I say to my father? He believed, he talked to me about Kolob. I was shocked. Yeah. You know, you know what, Rob, I was, the best thing to do, Nate, is to email us and we can give you more detailed things to say and show us exactly what the letter said. Because Moroni, I'm not sure what he's actually referring to. But praise God that you came out. You're going to be a light to that family. You love them into knowing the Lord. And uh, your dad's just trying to do what he thinks is best. But boy, you can show him the light through your, uh, through your uh, light of Jesus that's in you. Sean, I believe in your ministry. I believe in Christ. Thank you very much. Praise sir. God. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Rob in Cash Valley. He's LDS. Rob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, yeah? You're on the air, Rob. Okay, is it Sean? Yeah. Okay. I see your voice doesn't match what's on the TV. Yeah, you got to turn that TV down. It's down. Okay, uh, you've only got a minute and a half. Okay, I'll hurry. Um, just a comment, a couple of comments. One, when your other caller called in, they, talk, were, they were talking about the brass plates. It's interesting that the Book of Mormon never calls them the brass plates. They're called the plates of brass, which is indicative of the Jewish language. In fact, a lot of the Book of Mormon has uh, wordage that's very much like what the Hebrews used. Why they don't? Why they didn't just replicate the brass plates for everyone? It says in the Book of Mormon is why, is because much of that history is already had in the Bible. Mm. When it came to the priesthood, uh, I had a question for you. Can I address the brass plates thing first? Sure. Versus plates of brass. 
If you read Joseph Smith's revelations, like what we just read in Doctrine and Covenants, or how he wrote the witnesses' testimonies, or the way he spoke in other revelations, or even when he was talking to the newspaper, Joseph Smith spoke in Hebraisms. Joseph Smith cut his teeth on the Bible. His mother and father, his mother was just eccentric on the Bible. So he learned to speak and think in Hebraisms. It was no difficulty for him to write, and to just, he just automatically wrote in the way the Jews wrote because that's how he learned, was from the Bible. So that's why there's some Hebraisms, supposedly, in the Book of Mormon, plates of brass versus brass plates. Okay, but go ahead. That, that, isn't, uh, that doesn't totally satisfy my feelings about that, but... That's okay. A lot of the people, the early writers in American history had been taught from the Bible. In fact, most of America was raised on the Bible. And your point. I'm not uh, convinced that Hebraisms uh, were extant in their writings. Okay, look, at if you're going to build, Rob, your entire testimony of the Book of Mormon on the fact that it contains lines that sound like they're Scripture, you're in trouble. Look at, what, look at how the Bereans look for truth. And we only have 30 seconds, Rob. Call back another time. Uh, the, the, the Jews, just look at the Bible. God did not have a book fall out of the sky and land in the dust. He had people over 1,500 years compile that from real places, real families, real cultures, real archaeology, uh, real languages. And he didn't just foster this stuff out of nothing like uh, the Mormons are willing to believe. Rob brings up this little point, and he builds an entire house upon it, and it's a waste of time. Come back next week. We are going to start getting into the text now of the Book of Mormon. See you then.